starting a new series that's going to last the next nine weeks, and then we will get into the church. But it's been impressed upon my heart lately that a lot of the situations that we're dealing with in the world, especially in America right now, need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed biblically. If you notice, this is called dealing with the death parade, and here's the reason why. Number one, we need to know how to deal, because a lot of Christians don't know how to deal. A lot of Christians consider that the church is either A, what they do on Sunday, and that's just what they do on Sunday, and that's when you pull your Bible out is on Sunday, uh, which is wrong. Or it's something where we feel like that because we're part of the church, we just want to isolate ourselves so much from the things that are going on in the world, and that is wrong as well. In fact, you find that in the 1800s, whenever we had this enlightenment period that it's so-called, and notice that that's loaded language, this enlightenment period that came along, this idea of evolution started to go underway and people really started to gravitate towards science over the Bible and these types of things. You all of a sudden had this shift away and a lot of Christians (laughs) went on retreat permanently in the culture. They just drew back and decided they weren't going to be involved anymore. And it's done no good for the world. None. Some of the things that we are going to go over might bother you. They might disturb you. They might be topics that you would rather not hear about, or you can't believe that I'm talking about them in church. Let me go ahead and tell you, and I don't mean to say this arrogantly, I don't apologize for anything I'm going to bring up. Because for far too long, the Christian church has acted as ostriches with our heads in the sand. We have acted like sin is not as big of a deal as it is. And it is. Why we would want to say something about sin that is something other than what God has said is beyond me. Because then I have to ask the question, well, where are we getting our source material from? If we don't think that's sin, where is it? And how do we know? One of the worst things that we've ever done is started thinking for ourselves. You guys know this verse. The heart is what? Desperately? Wicked. And who what? Who can know it? Does it sound like we have a good foundation to start from? Absolutely not. And apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, let's just be honest, and this is kind of a play on words, we're a lost cause. We really are. Why am I calling it a death parade? Well, honestly, I couldn't figure out anything better to call it. Our entire culture is bent on death. Our culture loves death. Death. 4,400 babies are to believe in some way aborted. Aborted. A day. Whether it be through RU486 or whether it be through an actual abortion that's taking place. We're actually having debates right now. Elected officials are discussing whether or not a botched abortion baby who is alive and living after being born because we couldn't successfully murder them in the womb whether or not we should just turn our backs and have a conversation about what we're going to eat for dinner that night while that child dies. That's where we're at. We're actually having this discussion. Yet a woman gets into a car wreck who's pregnant. Her baby has been born. She dies and they hold the baby on life support and now they want to convict them of a possible double murder if the baby dies. Where's the line, guys? You see what I'm saying? And this is what happens. When you take... Somebody who is an authority, being God, and his word that is an authority, 
and you begin to fudge on the edges. You begin to smooth them out, sand them off, round them out so that it's a little bit easier pill to digest. Then what you've done is you've opened the floodgates for debauchery. You have allowed for an influx of redefining truth. I tell you this, this does not need to be redefined. It needs to be read and obeyed. And that is the problem we have with our culture. Now let me go ahead and say this as a disclaimer. If there's something I'm saying that you don't like, awesome. If you want to stand up and get mad and we can yell debate right here, that'll be fun for everybody else. But I don't know how edifying it's going to be, and that is my purpose, is to edify you. Over the next nine weeks, this might actually become kind of depressing. Why? We live in a depressing world. If you've missed that fact, you're going to be sorely surprised. But my goal is to bring it back to the point of God is the authority. He and he alone. Period. Now, why is it a parade? Here's the reason why. Because everybody is celebrating death. Right? It's a woman's right. Is it? Everybody notice that we've redefined marriage? Let me tell you where we've gotten the problem of this. Well, these people advocate for, watch the language, traditional marriage. What does the word traditional marriage say about marriage? It's what? It's outdated. We need to update this. When was marriage established? By God before what? Before sin ever entered the picture. So notice the idea of traditional has no bearing on it. Actually, what we need to do is stop saying traditional marriage and start saying biblical marriage. Why? Because it places the authority where it needs to be. The government does not mandate who does and doesn't get married. Government has been used as a pseudo-God in order to provide legitimacy for depravity. That's where it's at. Period. And we have to wake up. We have to stop thinking that Fox News is truth. We have to stop thinking that CNN is truth. Political parties have gotten Christians in more trouble than we ever need. It's not become a help, it's a hindrance. And why is that? Because we have strayed from God's Word. Now here's what I'm going to say. If you disagree with me and you don't want to come talk to me privately, that's cool, but come all nine weeks. Don't just take one sermon and say, well, this is everything and I hate people for that. No. All nine weeks. I spent a lot of time working on this, and I believe that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already answered all the issues that we have. So here's what I want to do. Number one, my temptation is to spend forever going through these first 17 verses. What I'm going to ask you to do over the next nine weeks is to just be focused upon verses 16 through 32. I'm going to ask you to read them over and over. We're going to deal very slowly. Sometimes you've wondered, well, yeah. What we were doing through foundational framework was expository preaching because we're unfolding each passage, but we're getting ready to get super expository, okay? We're going to spend nine weeks dealing with verses 16 through 32 only. That's the only thing we're going to do. We're going to look at other passages, but this is going to be the focus in, break down, pull apart so that everybody understands it. And in nine weeks when we're done, you should have an extremely thorough understanding to be able to biblically answer why our world is a death parade 
while we are championing the demise of everything good, holy, righteous, and wonderful. You ready to start? Romans, yes, sir. Romans 1, 16 through 32. So now here's what I want to do. Let's, let's zoom real quick through verses 1 through 15 just so that we understand it. Number one, Paul is a called apostle. An apostle is one that is sent out. In fact, the secular term that is used for it, the secular Greek term of which it was pulled from, was the idea of commissioning a lot of ships and sending them out for a voyage or a mission that needed to be accomplished. Maybe they're taking cargo somewhere. Maybe it's a battle that they're going to be involved in. But it's the idea of being sent out. But he's not just sent out for any reason. Notice that he has to say here, he is a bond servant, one who is willingly latched to Christ Jesus. He's called, being set apart, verse 1, as an apostle, a sent out one. Notice that he says in, he's set apart for the gospel of God. The idea here and set apart is the fact that he has been marked out for a reason. Now we know if we're familiar with Paul's conversion story in Acts 9, that the Lord actually makes a comment and says, he is my chosen vessel to minister to who? The Gentiles. I'm going to send this man to the nations to represent me. That's why he has been marked out by God. He's been marked out or he's been set apart for a mission or a task to accomplish. It says here about this gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised, okay, so notice that, he announced it as the idea, beforehand, beforehand is the Old Testament, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The completion of the Old Testament, if you wanted to put a little verse next there, a reference, Hebrews 1.1 unfolds that idea for you. All of the Old Testament is preparatory for our understanding of who Jesus Christ is as God in the flesh, the God-man who saves us from sin. Now, if you're like, okay, I need more information about that. We just did 71 Sundays that led to that point. And I'm sure that Mitch can get you a copy in the back, okay? So moving on, verse 3. Notice it's concerning his son. Now watch this. Who was born... Of a descendant of David. That word descendant is actually literally translated seed. He is of the seed of David. Now who was David? King. He was the most prominent king that Israel has had up until this point. Notice it says after that, according to the what? Flesh. Notice everything in verse 3 concerns itself with Jesus' flesh. Notice that he is concerning his son. A fleshly relationship would be like that. We would have a son today. He's been born, born literally speaking, of the seed, out of a reproduction type of idea. Notice, of David, having a descendant line, according to the flesh in his body, or the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 4. This deals with the Spirit, who was declared... The Son of God. Notice it's announced. Why? Because He's triumphant over sin, hell, the grave. He's conquered it all and salvation only rests in Him. He has been declared the Son of God. Notice it says after that, with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one, the preeminent one, the Master. He is over all things. He is God in the flesh. Look at verse 5. Through whom we have received, notice that Paul includes himself, grace, grace is unmerited favor on infinitely ill-deserving people. You'll never deserve it. 
He freely and unadulteratedly gives it. That's just who God is. Notice, not only grace, but apostleship. This is the special designation of Paul, to bring about the obedience of the faith. Now, don't tack on to that like a work salvation type of thing. Is believing the gospel right? Only six people believe that. Is believing the gospel of Jesus Christ the right thing for someone to do? It is. Therefore, it can qualify as obedience without saying the person had to do any work in order to have it. Does that make sense? So when he's talking about calling people to the obedience of faith, he's saying that they are getting right with God because they are responding in faith to the message that's been given to them. Notice, among all the Gentiles, among all the nations, for his name's sake, among whom, verse 6, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The called being you're being called out of the nations. That's what the idea of the church is. It's the Greek word ekklesia. It means the called out ones, the ones who have been called out of the world to be God's special people that have been set apart for his special purposes. It says here, verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Saints are not people that have to be dead for thousands of years before somebody gives them the thumbs up because they wear a pointy hat and says, you can go in. That's not it. Saints are people who are redeemed, believers. They are people who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and now have the indwelling Holy Spirit is part of the church age. It says here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, here's the transition. First, I thank my God through Jesus. Why? Because he is our pathway to God. For you all, because your faith is being pro- proclaimed throughout the whole world. How cool would it be if somebody said, whoa, this is Grace Bible Church? And we said, yeah, get you some coffee. And they said, I have heard about your faith throughout the whole world. Is that a good church? That's a healthy church. Rome (laughs) was a healthy church in Paul's time. It was a church of where when he went place to place and they were getting information about believers and brothers and sisters in different places, Rome always came up as a place of great faith that was being exercised within their body. That's good stuff. Lick your fingers, that won't last long, right? But that's a good place to be. Notice, it's proclaimed throughout the whole world. Verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how I unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, begging, requesting is the idea, beseeching God. If perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Why? Because Paul did not start this church. Of all the amazing missionary things he did, he did not start this church in Rome. And so his great desire of his heart was to come and to be amongst them. Now, for what reason? Watch this. Notice it says, verse 11, For I long to see you, here's the reason, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, so that you may be established, you may be strengthened, you may be firmed or shored up. It will encourage you towards maturity. Paul desired to show up and take the spiritual gifts that God had blessed him with and to exercise them amongst the body because when believers exercise their spiritual gifts, they edify one another and build one another up. Raise your hand. I'm going to go ahead and draw a light to this. Raise your hand if you've ever benefited from Pastor Steve's preaching. Okay. 
Does anybody know why? Because Pastor Steve has that spiritual gift. And by him exercising his spiritual gift, it edifies the body of Christ. Everybody see how that works? It's a good thing, yes? What is your spiritual gift? And are you exercising it to have that type of hand-raising effect on one another? That's a healthy church. Notice that Paul wants to go there and he wants to be of benefit from them and he understands it's not in his wisdom. I've got a cool church design. I'm going to cast vision for 2050. Notice that's not it. He doesn't care about leadership networks and all that other garbage. What he cares about is exercising what God has given him because he understands that anything of benefit from him is going to be Holy Spirit wrought. That is the difference. Does everybody see that? Okay, I'm going to speak low, and I'm going to speak loud, so everybody pay attention. Here we go. So notice, exercising a spiritual gift. Verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, Paul knows that when he sets out to encourage other people, he gets encouragement in return. You ever been like that? You're going to go visit somebody, you want to build them up, lift them up, you walk away feeling like you're on cloud nine. Why is that? Because they were pouring into you. It was believers having fellowship with one another, and that's what the Spirit does amongst us. Moving on, verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far so that I may obtain some fruit among you. Why? By exercising his spiritual gift. Even as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation or I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In other words, he's got a mission field in order to deal with. But here's what I want you to grasp, verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, everybody time out. Are the people that he's writing to saved or unsaved? If they're saved people, why in the world does he want to preach the gospel to them? good news ah say it jamie say it right because the greatest problem with the saved is we need to get more saved we need to go on getting saved we need to be getting saved daily if not hour by hour all the time he's crazy i'm not but we have got to change our thinking about how we understand the word salvation because when we use salvation I think it's used in at least six different physical terms and three different spiritual terms all throughout the Bible. Different ways. Whenever the woman who had the issue of blood, she says, if I just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I will be... It does say saved. Everybody's translated it healed, but it's the exact same word as saved. Does that mean if she touches the hem of his garment, she's going to heaven when she dies? It does not. It means that she will be physically restored. Oh, Lord, they're encamping about me, and they come to kill me. Lord, please save me. Does that mean, Lord, take me to heaven when I die? No, it means bring in your righteous right arm and smack some fools around so I'll be able to get out of here bodily. That's what it means. Help! Deliver me! Rescue me is the idea. Why does he want to preach the gospel to already save people? Because they need to keep getting saved. Something I want to give you here is if you notice, you'll turn open to the third page in your book. And Zach, being the patient, gracious, always with the smile person that he is, wrote all this down while I dictated it to him. If you want to have something good rub off on you, hang out with Zach for a while. It's good stuff. Notice that you have salvation in three different 
ideas here. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. In fact, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to take your pen, and if you would write above justification, Romans 3, verse 21, through Romans 5, or sorry, Romans 4, verse 25. Forgive me. Romans 3, verse 21, through Romans 4, verse 25. That is the justification section of Romans. Under sanctification, I would ask you to write 5 1, chapter 5, verse 1, through Romans 8, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 1, through Romans 8, verse 17. And for glorification, I would ask you to write Romans 8 18, through verse 39. Romans 8 18, through 39. Did everybody get that? Let me go over it one more time. Justification, 321 through 425. Sanctification, 5-1 through 817. Glorification, 818 through 39. Everybody get that? Now I want to show you this real quick. I want to show you some of these instances. Number one, John 3.16. We familiar with that? Yeah, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life good verse eternal life how about john 5 24 do we know that one truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but he's passed from death into life these are justification verses now what does that mean look at your box here it means to be saved from the penalty of sin what are the wages of sin Death. It is saving you from spiritual death. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it has come to you due to the love of God for lost people, and you believe in it, and that is the only requirement. It is not promised to sin, not to sin anymore. It's not be willing to give up everything. It's not go and burn all your Willie Nelson records or anything else like that. It is the fact that you have heard the gospel and you have believed, and at that moment you have eternal life in fact look at the tense mitch bring that back up please john 5 24 look at the tense here has has eternal life it's yours at that moment and look what it says after that and does not come into judgment but has passed everybody see that already already done you have already been saved from the penalty of your sins Our sins deserve death, period. That's how we should view sin. Every time I'm reasoning with myself of maybe I could get away with it or thinking this way about something is the right way to do it in my heart, I might as well have picked up a hammer and started railing on the nails that went into Christ's hands because that's exactly what I'm doing. I am calling for death Every time I entertain sin. And we have got to take sin seriously. Sin is the very thing that separated you and I from the original relationship that we had with God. This is why this ministry of sharing the gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. Coming back into a right standing. You know what that very word tells you? You used to be in a right standing, but sin separated or severed that right standing and now we need to be brought back into it again and that's only possible because of what christ did does that make sense to everybody 
So when we talk about justification, this idea of being justified in his sight, declared righteous, we have the righteousness of Christ. He has taken all of our sin upon himself. That's what we're talking about. And we've been saved from death, spiritual death. Now look at the next here on this chart. The grounds is always by God's grace. We'll never deserve it. It's always through personal faith. No one can believe for you. If you were brought up in a Christian family, that doesn't make you saved. It is an individual choice for every single person. They have to deal with Jesus at some point. It has to happen. Notice what the, what the work of the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and regenerates at the moment of faith. Regenerates. It's a fancy scrabble word for born again. It means to be born again or to be born from above is the idea. It is the work of God taking one that was separated and joining them again and making them alive unto God. Notice he also seals us for the day of redemption, like the strongest Ziploc bag you've ever seen. If Gorilla Tape made Ziploc bags, it would be still a terrible illustration to use in front of a lot of people. So moving on. (laughs) Justification. It is a free gift. You don't have to do anything for it. All of the work that you need in order to be accepted before God has been done for you by Jesus Christ. He is what makes you acceptable. Faith is the channel that allows you to take advantage of that benefit. You believe, you are saved. Period. You are justified. Everybody understand that? Now, a lot of times what we've had problems with, especially in our modern day churches, is they want to take justification and sanctification together. And they'll say, well, if you're really a believer in Jesus, you won't think like this, or you won't act like this, or you won't want to do those things anymore. There's a word for that. It's called liars. That's what that is. Just because you become a believer in Christ doesn't mean that your flesh is now perfect. It almost seems ridiculous to advocate for perfection in this day and age. But then they will stand back and judge you and say, well, because you're not doing this or acting like this, because you haven't spent 29 hours in a day in the Bible, you're not saved. How terrible it is to put our judgment in the hands of other people. So now what is sanctification. Well, it's something separate. Let me go ahead and say that. In fact, the idea of sanctification means set apart is the idea of what it means. And I want to take you to a couple of passages. If you would, go to John 8. I've given you multiple passages there, but we're only going to look at a couple of them. And the reason why I'm trying to establish this with you is so when we move forward, you know exactly what we're talking about and unlocking this whole idea that's going on in Romans. Sanctification is the idea of being saved from the power of sin. When you are a redeemed person, you believed in Jesus and you have eternal life, sin still has a power that it wants to exercise in you, even though it's not your master any longer. Now you have the indwelling Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption, and you have the ability to say no to sin, something that you never had before. When we look at this, look at John 8.30. As he spoke these things, many came to, what's the word? Believe in him. Now let me ask you this, just from what we know about justification, are they saved or unsaved? They're saved people, why? Because they believed. In fact, the whole gospel of John, 98 times, believe, 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 believe. It's the only book written in the entire Bible for lost people. If you want to lead somebody to Christ, use the gospel of John. That's what it's there for. So notice, they hear what Jesus says. They believe, therefore they're saved people. Look what it says, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had what? Believed already. Notice, they had believed him. If you continue in my word, everybody see that word continue? 
If you remember when we dealt with John 15 and we talked about the Greek word meno, which means to abide or to remain, right? Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do what? Exactly. So notice, in order to be doing something of any worth before God's eyes, you have to be abiding or remaining with him. This word right here, continue, it's the exact same Greek word, meno. It's the idea of abiding. It's the idea of continuing with him. So notice, if you abide, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You're truly followers of mine, learners, students of mine is the idea. And you will know the truth. That word, know, gnosko, is the idea of an experiential knowledge. It's a firsthand knowledge due to an experience you've been involved in. So notice this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Does anybody think it's odd that he's talking to people who have already believed about what is necessary for them to be free? Everybody see that? Now here's what you can do. Oh, well, they must have not believed good enough, or maybe they need to get baptized a twelfth time. Anybody here been baptized more than once? Raise your hand up. I'm curious. Let's just have some fun here for a second. Okay, three times, keep your hand up. Four times, keep your hand up. Five times. John, you win. Have you been baptized five times? Oh. No? Four? Okay. Have you been baptized four times? Twice. Anybody here four times? I've been baptized four times. I know some of you are like, you need it, right? (laughs) I know some of you are like, it's got to take sooner or later. Four times. I don't win anything. But anyway, why? Because I tell you, for who said that? Maxie, why? Stupid reasons. Man-made reasons. Because I had people teaching me at the very beginning of my Christianity that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't matching up. That Jesus wasn't enough. That's what I was told. So I'm reading passages like this and going, oh my gosh. And I'm scared to death that I'm still going to hell because whatever happened, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I didn't follow it right. It's like the prescription, right? I only took one. I should have took three. Might as well go for it. Whatever, you know. But it's that desperation of knowing that you're not eternally set with God because of what people taught you, not because of what God said. Dangerous. Check everything with the Scriptures. Everybody notice here that he's talking to saved people about how to be free. How can you be free in your Christian life? How can you be saved from the power of sin abiding in his word? Does everybody see that? Notice this is talking about something other than justification. The idea here of sanctification is by grace, God's grace, through personal faith in Jesus, not just as Savior, but as your Lord. In other words, you are coming to terms in your growth with Him that what He has had to say in His Word about the specific areas of your life is the best possible result that there could be. And therefore, we need to forfeit our ideas about what is necessary to grow in Christ and instead submit ourselves to Him. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes? Who's confused? Any questions? This is going to be a fun series, guys. I mean, you're writing your own notes. What else could you ask for? My notes are only a page long. John is very clear in how he spells everything out about the difference between believing and following. And we have to be very conscious of that idea of what it is to be a student of God and somebody who is just a believer in God or a believer in Christ. That's possible. There are carnal Christians. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. But notice that the condition, and here's how you know that that's not true, because the condition is on who? It's on us. If you abide in my word, right? Which means that if you don't abide in my word, you are going to be in bondage to your sin. 
your ongoing sin in your life. You will have no salvation from the power of sin in your life if you don't abide or remain in His Word. If you decide you're going to conduct your life how you want to do it, you are not being saved in that moment from the power of sin. Sin is having mastery over you. That's heretical. That's not possible. Read Romans 6. Romans 6 tells you, since you've been given this privileged position... Since you have been crucified with Christ, now present the instruments of your body as instruments of righteousness. And don't let sin have reign over your mortal body. Don't let it rule. Why would Paul tell Christians not to let sin reign over their mortal bodies if it wasn't a possibility to happen? The whole argument he's trying to make in that section is, be saved from the power of sin. Be sanctified. Live in the reality as you truly are of everything that Christ has made you. Does that make sense to everybody? I tell you, there's a lot of distortion going on with Christians about what it takes to be uh, walking and following, being obedient. This whole idea, everything we need has already been given to us. Give us a Bible and we believe it, we're on fire. I don't understand how you can be anything but on fire if you're receiving the Word of God. If that's not you this morning, ask yourself why. What is keeping you from being on fire for the Lord? Because if you're finding yourself dissatisfied with the church or with my preaching or something I've said or something in your quiet time or whatever it is, there is a sin that is keeping you from receiving the fullness of everything he has. Confess it. Humble yourself. Get rid of it. Abide in his word. Yes, it takes effort on behalf of the Christian. It is a reconstructing of your life to not settle for the old ways and to use your justification as a launching pad because you are already fully accepted in Him. That's the idea. Look in the bottom category there. Sorry, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And I I probably should have put convicts us of sin in there as well because He still does that. He gives discernment. He comforts and guides. He brings the Word to our remembrance and He gives us illumination. He lights up the Word to our understanding. Why? Because He's the author. He wrote it. Why would He not want you and I to understand it and be more conformed to the image of Christ? It will be costly obedience. It will result in growth, maturity, and completion. Growing up into Christ is the idea that's there. How about glorification? This is a good one. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1. And don't worry, I'm going to tie it back into Romans. You might be wondering where in the world am I going. We're going to tie it back. It's okay. 1 Peter 1. And I'm actually, Mitch, forgive me. I'm going to do 3, 4, and 5 as well of these verses. But people are still flipping their pages, so you got plenty of time, right? Here's what Peter says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Stop. What type of salvation is that? Justification. When you're born again, you're regenerated, there's your justification. Everybody confused? Who's asleep? Do I need to ask Art to bring the coffee cart down the middle aisle? Okay, stick with I'm excited, you should be excited. It's only 10 o'clock in the morning. But still, notice, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. For what purpose? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. It's immortal. There's no decay that characterizes it. And it is undefiled. It is free of deformity and will not 
fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith. Now watch this. For a salvation ready to be revealed when? In the last time. Does everybody see that there's a future salvation? Now some people have said, oh, well, here's what it is. If you've believed in Jesus and you have an adequate amount of works, when you get to the end, they're kind of going to they're going to cash you out through the checkier thing, the, the cashier thing. And if you've got enough works that equal up, you get to go in. If you don't have enough good works to show that you were really saved, right, and you're gone. I wish we had the the, the Price is Right you didn't win thing on here. I wish we had that. We could do that whenever those instances come up. People actually believe that you can believe in Christ. But if you don't have the works to back it up, you've disqualified yourself and you were actually never really saved to begin with. What does that say about the promise of Jesus? Can you imagine living your entire life freaked out about whether or not you're really going or not? I did that for three years. You thought I'm high strung now. You should see me then. Can you imagine me with no assurance? It's like a squirrel, you know, crazy. But notice this is a salvation to be had at a future time. I will be saved. You will be saved. I am saved. By the mercy of the Lord and me applying Scripture, I am being saved right now from the power of sin, but I also will be saved. Notice it says, this salvation to be revealed at a future time, at the last time. Verse 6, in this, in this future salvation, look what he says. What does it say? You greatly rejoice. Pause, hold the train for a second. Are you greatly rejoicing in your future salvation? It ain't nothing but good. Right? Being with Jesus face to face in a state of bliss, I'm being saved from the presence of sin. Sin will no longer have any presence in our lives at all. Hallelujah! Saved from the presence of sin. It will no longer be around me in any form. It'll be perfection. In this, we greatly rejoice. Do we? Do we? Do we? I kind of, who said kind of? That sounds kind of fun. Come on, guys. It's good stuff. In this, we greatly rejoice. Even though now, uh uh-oh, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, testing, going through hard times what's coming up is great right now might hurt it might be difficult you may not be all you want to be in life maybe you're discouraged over ongoing sin maybe you're having to deal with some frailty or ailment or sickness maybe you've got a whole family around you that just does not understand the new life in christ and wants to just disqualify you as judgmental and a bigot Who knows what persecution you undergo at any given time. Right now might be unpleasant, but as Paul tells us in Romans 8, this present suffering is not even being worth compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It's not even worth comparing to it because it is going to be overflowingly abundant beyond reason. So notice you're currently going through this testing, this trial. Notice what it says, verse 7. So that the proof, and that word proof is probably a really bad translation. The idea there is the testing, and it speaks to the idea of endurance. The testing of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
Even though tested, and just so you know, that word tested and the word proof there are derivatives of the same root Greek word, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, for the believer who stays faithful, who is being saved daily from the power of sin, and that is sanctifying them and conforming them to the image of Christ, every hardship that you go through and endure faithfully because of God's word is going to result in praise, honor, and glory to Jesus Christ at the end. It's all great things that we get to praise him with. Do you realize that? Because we so often reason we're looking for an easy trap door out. We're looking for a way to get out of our hard times, not realizing that God is doing eternal work through us in this moment. Look what he says after that. Verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And remember, in the Bible, love is an evidence of obedience. Obedience equals what it is to love God. John 13 through 16 is very clear about that. I want to tell you the wrong thing. But look what it says. Though now you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why? Verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith. Does everybody see its future? Yes? Who's asleep? The outcome of your faith, the what? The salvation of your souls, your life. When we talk about what it is for the life or the soul to be saved, we are talking about what it looks like in glorification. As we are walking in obedience now, we are currently saving our souls because we are bringing our lives under conformity to the Word of God. When we bring it under conformity to the Word of God, guess what you're not doing? You're not sinning. Does everybody see that? When God's Word is dictating the way that you proceed forward in your life, you are not sinning. It is actually possible for Christians not to sin. When you're walking in obedience, you can't be sinning. When you're walking in the light, as he is in the light, it's no sin in the light. Does everybody understand that? This is what it means. You've been saved from the power of sin. Why? Because sin is not reigning over you. And then as a Christian, when you do sin, because everybody will sin, there's not going to be perfection until glorification, you immediately, 1 John 1, 9, that sucker and cut it out and get it out of here. Catch the sickness early so it's easier to eradicate. Everybody see that? The salvation of your souls. Does everybody realize that salvation is a much bigger word than maybe what we sometimes think it to be? Yes? Hopefully I've given you enough reasoning there about what that looks like. And you can look over that chart. We might refer to it periodically, but I definitely want to give it to you. So now turn back to Romans 1. Why does he want to preach the gospel to save people? Here's the reason why. Because saved people need to get saved. They need to get saved from the power of of sin, And that is exactly what the problem is going on, not just in Paul's day, but in our day as well. It's the power of sin that is dominating not just lost people. We would expect that. And let me say something about that real quick. Christians, stop being shocked that lost people are acting like lost people. They're dead. They're separated. Without the work of the Spirit regenerating them at the moment of faith, they can't act any other way but sinful and dead. Dead people act like dead people. They're separated from God. There's no life and they have no hope. So they are scrambling for every possible answer and they're plotting their own futures as the best that a lost, depraved, sin-laden, helpless, and hopeless person can. That's why they need the gospel. 
Because if anything good is ever going to come out of their life, it's got to be God through them. It's got to be them getting saved from the penalty of sin. Does that make sense? Now, this also runs rampant in the church. We've got a lot of different ideas about how to approach things, but I'm really surprised that we want to look everywhere else but God's Word. Why? What's better than God's Word? Somebody give me something, because it happens so much. There's got to be a reason. You guys know something I don't know? It's important to think about, man. Why is it that we opt for everything except what God's Word says? Here's one of the reasons why. is because when God's Word said it, it requires that we change. People don't like to change. One of the reasons why we've slapped that marriage label with traditional is because we want to render it unchangeable, right? How do I know if I'm that person? If your favorite hymn is, I shall not be moved, it's probably you. Glad there's, I don't have Tom here to pick on. I got to get somebody. Romans 1.16. And here's what everybody's done, man. We bought the posters. We made sure that Tim Tebow approved of it before we grabbed this verse, right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Everybody realize, what's the word gospel mean? What's what? It's truth, yes. But what does the word mean? Euangelion, what does it mean? It means good news. It is good news. Does everybody realize that there's all kinds of different good news in the Bible? There's the good news of the kingdom, right? It was preached to the Jews. In Revelation, I think it's 9 or 10 or something like that. There's an angel that comes down with an eternal gospel, and all he says is pretty much repent or you're going to be killed. That's supposed to be good news. I didn't give it the label gospel. God did. There's all kinds of different gospels. The question we need to ask is, what gospel is he talking about? Well, obviously, the gospel that was preached in the Old Testament preparing us for Jesus. That's what the context says, right? In fact, look at verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. Does everybody see that? Verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son look at verse 15 so for my part i'm eager to preach the gospel to you verse 16 for i'm not ashamed of the gospel why because the gospel has power for in it is the power of who in the gospel is the power of god now here's where we get messed up look at the verse for i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god it is the gospel is the power of god for what salvation justification sanctification glorification sure are you sure well let's look at what it says the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek for in it in it the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith The idea of salvation here is sanctification. We have often taken this as a justification verse. If you've taken it that way, that's cool. And if you disagree, that's fine. But me and Jesus think that it's sanctification. (laughs) People used to get really mad at my last church when I used that joke. I don't understand that. Maybe that's why I'm not there. I don't know. But anyway, I'm just kidding. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or in other words, to the one who believes, it is the power of God. If you are believing, you have already been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. But because Paul wants to preach the gospel to saved people, he wants to encourage us to keep going on being saved from the presence of sin in your life currently. Notice what it says here. 
for the Jew first and also for the Greek, which just so happens to be the makeup of the church. They were either Jew or Gentile, but upon coming in faith in Christ, they are now considered one in his body. Now watch what it says here. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is, what's it say? Revealed, fully known. In other words, in the gospel is God's righteousness. And when you start living in compliance with the gospel and you're being saved from the power of sin, guess what you start exhibiting in your life because the Holy Spirit is doing it. Anybody know? Righteousness. By being saved and keep on getting saved, we exhibit the righteousness of God. Now watch how this happens here. Notice, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, it's manifest, from faith, when you initially believe, that's the channel of which we're made righteous, to faith, that's how you're living your life, as it is written, but the righteous man shall be saved by faith, or shall, notice that. Notice it's not about your being, it's about your living. And this is actually taken from Habakkuk. And it's speaking at that time about the person that's going to be spared from certain destruction to come when the Babylonians would come in and wipe out Israel because of their rampant idolatry in the face of unparalleled revelation from God. Prophets had come and spoke to them, repent, get away from all this evil that you want to entertain. And Habakkuk's like, Lord, what's going on? These people need to be spanked. And he said, well, Habakkuk, I'm going to spank them, but you're not going to believe me how I'm going to do it. Now, tell me, God, I can handle it. Well, I'm going to use a pagan nation to come in and spank my children. I don't believe that, God. If you want to know how to get out of harm's way and be saved, be delivered from that situation, you live by faith in what I've said. That's how you live. Because here's the thing, if you're not living by faith, you die. It's pretty straightforward. If we are not living by faith, or let me put it this way so we'll be more familiar. Apart from him, we can do the same thing it's the same thing so notice it's living by faith now how do we know this for sure we didn't necessarily cover it but i just want to give you a glimpse into what we're going to look at in a couple of weeks look at verse 18 for the wrath of god i make no apologies for that i think that's important for you to know right now the word wrath is the idea of being severely displeased or more particularly to have anger about something God's wrath, the wrath of God, is revealed, notice it's present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now I want to draw your attention to something pretty clear. Number one, wrath of God. Is that bad? Yes, notice, Theology 101, wrath of God, bad. That's the answer. The wrath of God is bad. How do we survive the wrath of God. Well, we're saved. The wrath of God would never come against us. You sure? We abide. We live by faith. In other words, the gospel is the power of salvation, sanctification for us. The gospel saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And can the wrath of God come against Christians? Absolutely it can. How do you know if you're a candidate for the wrath of God? Well, are you suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness? That doesn't sound right. How many of you here as parents, when your child does something wrong, refuses to spank them? If that's the case, you're a bad parent. Let me go ahead and tell you. 
You need to be reconstructed as a parent to think biblically about what it is to discipline a child. Because when they are blatantly defiant, they don't learn by, no, no, honey, don't do that. And God doesn't treat His children that way either. When His children sin, He deals with it decisively. He comes in and He corrects it quickly. And in such a way as to teach a lesson so that it does not happen again. We shouldn't be parenting in any other different way than that. The wrath of God against unrighteous. Why? Because people are suppressing it, covering it up. It's like doing this. What does God's Word say? Mm, Oh, look at this right here. This is what matters. What matters is what we've legislated. What matters is what Cosmo says. What matters is what's on the front of the National Enquirer's. I'm going through the grocery line. What matters is what Oprah has declared righteous. Where did all these talk show people get this authority from? How in the world is our... Well, that's exactly right. Satan, that's true. How in the world have we allowed horoscopes to dictate how we view our days? Since when did the opinion of other people become so important? You know what they call that in high school? Peer pressure. You realize that the whole world is sinfully running like high schoolers. Good gravy, if that's not an illustration, doesn't get your attention. And what we actually find, what is the cause of things that are going on? Well, the cause is sin, and the reaction from God is His wrath. As a Christian, are you suppressing righteousness? Do you have just a little pocket of sin that's okay? Guys, do you have that hidden drawer full of pornography that you want to make sure that your kids don't get into? that causes your wife to secretly sit here and think about why she's not good enough to be the entertainment of everything that your eyes would possibly need and satisfy you. You've got to look elsewhere. What about those certain shows that you have dialed in somewhere else that you watch late at night after everybody goes to bed? That's unrighteousness. That's suppressing the truth. Because all those things are sin. Ladies, How about you're so concerned with keeping up with the Joneses by prettying yourself so much that the inside is dark and decayed? That your appearance is ultimately your God? Because you're really concerned about how other people view you. Go to the grocery store sometime in your bathrobe. (laughs) I would never do that. Don't be so proud. I'd do it. (laughs) Just getting cheese, right? Let's not be so proud. When we talk about that Satan is the God, the prince of this present age, the God of this world, that's Jesus' words. He has so effectively woven the tapestry of deceit in this present system that we live in that a lot of times we buy into worldliness and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize that we have put our chips in that basket until it's too late. Remember, his object is deceit. He doesn't want to know. He, he doesn't want you to know he's leading him in a wrong path. But I tell you this: if our noses are buried here, we will see more clearly. Let me ask you this, husbands and wives: what do your words look like towards your spouse, even in times of frustration? Maybe you have an unbelieving spouse. Guess what? Doesn't nullify you from being obedient to the Word of God. This is what we always use, right? Well, you know, the Bible says, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. I'm going to tell you a secret. He didn't need you to tell him that. He knows it. You've just stepped into the world of nagging. And he clogs his ears and doesn't want to hear it. 
And then what is the response? Well, because he's not going to love me as Christ loves the church, I am not going to submit to him as unto the Lord. Is that the way to handle that situation? Maybe guys, you come in with chefs, but you know you're supposed to submit, woman. <laughs> Good luck not getting poisoned at dinner. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> and then what happens? Well, I'm not going to love her as Christ loves the church. Those commandments are not given based off the worth of the other person. Those commandments are given because of who Jesus is. Submit to him as unto the Lord. Well, he's not worth it. Well, of course he's not, and neither are you. Jesus is worth it. And it's Jesus' command, not ours. God has infinitely better for every single person in here. And he has equipped us to take of it, utilize it, enjoy it, and glorify him greatly through it. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. All of them. You lack nothing. Are we settling for less than what God has made available to us? This is going to be a hard series for some of you. It's hard for me. Good grief, I've repented like 12 times this week. I mean, more than that, but regarding this sermon. Because I saw a lot of what I'm so dissatisfied in the, in the world. Let's be honest, I had to look at my own heart and ask where it was there. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you use the Word of God to convict us and show us that you don't want us to just be saved, but to keep on being saved. That only in your Gospel is the power of of your righteousness, that your righteousness can be displayed through us, that the righteous will live, live abundantly. Father, examine our hearts, boil them hot, bring to the surface what is keeping us from living abundantly. Pray, Father, that we stop trying to live life. We would call out to you, the only one that can make a difference. You want to love, you want to nurture, you want to minister, you want to exhibit grace upon grace, you want to lavish us in all of these blessings, and you've done so. Father, we don't need to miss out any longer. Convict us where we need it. Strengthen us where we need it. Pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.